like sports talk with absolutely no sports talk welcome to the latest edition of the just not sports podcast this is the show where a couple guys who work in sports talk to the people who play and cover sports about anything they like just not sports on today's show what up it's howard beck he writes for bleach report he's the host of the full 48 we go deep, and I mean deep, on... Like the on, length of a movie. It is a movie. <laughs> <laughs> on R-E-M. Uh, it's Howard's favorite band. It's uh, my favorite band. It's a band that is not talked about enough. And we break down their best albums, uh, deep cuts that you should check out, best concert moments, where they fit in the American songbook and, you know, hey, look, it's the holidays, you're traveling, you got delays, you need like a 90-minute conversation about REM. That's why we started this, a sports podcast. I'm your co-host, Brad Burke. I'm a sports marketer in Chicago. Joining me in our Brooklyn bureau, it is seven-time Emmy-winning sports producer, Gareth Hughes. Gareth Give me your favorite REM song. Go. I think favorite would probably be End of the World as We Know It. I love some of the early stuff, and I'm not like a deep cut early stuff guy, but I love Don't Go Back to Rockville, I Am Superman, Radio Free Europe. We've talked in the past on this show about first songs, first album. Radio Free Europe is up there as one of the best first songs, first albums. Not here tonight. Adam Millard. Uh, Joe Reed. You'll hear from them very soon. Tonight, we're just doing a quick intro with me and Gareth since we were interviewing Howard Beck. Gareth, you and I were children of the 90s in the most literal way, meaning that we were like midway through high school in 95. Like We were like the inflection point of starting the 90s where In Excess was the most rockin' band and ending the 90s with <laughs> some sort of weird... Uh, with Woodstock '99, Woodstock '99, uh, and Fred Durst and Christina Aguilera and Ricky Martin. The '90s was a weird time. Uh, Where does REM fit when you look back at music of that era? Are they important to you? I mean, and no pressure to say yes. Like, but do you find them to be an important uh, influence in your own musical taste at that time? They were big at that time. They did not stick with me like they stuck with you and Howard. That does not mean that I'm right. I think that they're worthy of all the love and praise that they got over the years and the remembrances they got when they broke up or ended their run. Um, I'll still always think of those guys as a band. They're just not making music anymore. We grew up, Brad and I, in Oxford, Ohio, and Oxford, Ohio was known for having one of the best independent uh, radio stations in the country at the time, and most influential, 97X BAM, The Future of Rock and Roll. The Future of Rock and Roll. Exactly. And they were independent to the early 2000s. They They were a big deal, and they provided a huge... 
uh, musical education for us. Like to be able to just turn on, this isn't like left of the dial radio. This was 97.7 and they would play guided by voices. It's where I got first heard um, pavement uh, nine inch nails, all these bands and every Memorial day weekend, because two hours up the road, they were doing the Indianapolis 500. They would do the modern rock 500 and they would play the best songs in modern rock from the late seventies up to whatever date that was. And they would rework it every year, uh, counting down from 500 to one over the course of a three day weekend. And then he would go to a couple stores around town and they would hand out the, they would have like a list and you could look at it and read it and things like that. And one of the years, like one of my peak years and number one would change a lot. I remember one year it was, uh, how soon is now? Um, one of those years it was radio free Europe. And so like that to me was the influence of REM. In our hometown, the most influential, like 97X, whether you liked the music or not, was kind of the big brother that would introduce you to music for every kid that could grow up within its broadcast uh, broadcasting range. And if you listen for three days straight to get the answer to the question, what is the most significant song in all of modern rock? At the end of those three days, when I was 15 years old, this metaphorical musical big brother whispered in my ear, it is radio free Europe by this band REM. And that's, that's the place they'll hold like the ultimate influential band that you love and respect, whether you listen to them all the time or not. In the eighties, they were like an exciting wave of college rock radio. And it's really hard to explain college rock to people now because music is totally on demand now. But back in the 80s, you were probably, I mean, we weren't in college in the 80s, but you were probably listening to like your college radio station, you know, or you were, you know, you're buying cassettes. You probably didn't even own a, a CD player. And well, college radio now, or like, it's what SoundCloud is now. You know what I mean? Like, it's where you would go to find that stuff. Yeah. And, but I remember going to my college radio station in like the late 90s, early 2000s. And I'm I'm reading, I, I volunteered there my freshman year, and I'm reading these horrible, uh, prepackaged taped uh, segments about cake and fucking, <laughs> you know, Limp Biscuit, and I'm just like, this is the music is terrible. Like back in the '80s, I think college rock was the way to hear what we thought of as earnest, good rock and roll at a time when traditional pop radio was not playing anything like that. I mean. Top 40 radio was just playing garbage. Uh, Correct. Uh, I mean, I, I think of the 80s music as having value. Like, there's value to Huey Lewis. I'm just not sure that I would put it in the same sphere as, you know, R.E.M.'s document. <laughs> as right, much as I like right. sports and that scene from American Psycho. Let me ask you this. Uh, did you ever see R.E.M. live? I don't think so. Did you? I never did. Yeah, I saw him in Columbus. We talk about that with Howard. Gareth, did you have a favorite concert ever? I'm not sure we ever even talked about this on the show. Okay, so I have one really snobby answer to favorite concert that I'll just share, even though you're you're going to be like, ugh, whatever. But basically, it was the band Blonde Redhead in the early 2000s, and somebody was like, just go see this band. And the only reason it's one of my favorite concerts is I had never heard a song by them. And I was just like, okay, whatever. And someone just handed me tickets, 
And it just floored me. And I think I loved that just because it was so unexpected. But my favorite concert or the most impressed I've ever been with a concert to this day might be my first concert ever, which was Nine Inch Nails on the Further Down the Spiral Tour in 1994. And they also played for two and a half hours and broke so many instruments and had such an elaborate stage show that it gave me the impression that that's what every concert was like. And that impression was not right. That impression was wrong. (laughs) Hey, true story. I was going to go see Nine Inch Nails. Was that in Dayton, Ohio, Gareth? It was at Hair Arena in Dayton, Ohio. Okay, so I had tickets to the same show. I was going to drive there with John Kleefeld and Kevin Vaughn, a future drummer of the Heartless Bastards and other bands. And the show got canceled, right? Because Trent got sick. And they canceled it, and they, and they did it again later in the uh, in the in, in, like a month later. Do you remember this? Uh, yeah, I didn't. I did not remember that at all. I remember. The, I'll remember the date for the rest of my life. The day that I actually went and saw it was December 29th, nineteen ninety four. Just because that day was circled on my calendar for so long that I I'll never forget it. Yeah, and I, I, when I was ready to go, my mom had, in the hiatus between the two, my mom had read an article about the, what was it, the Jim Rose Traveling Circus? What was the... The Jim Rose Side Show Circus opened. For part of the tour, Marilyn Manson opened, but then they bailed because of the rescheduling, I guess. So, so some, the Jim prick, Rose, some prick yeah. columnist in either Cincinnati or Dayton... Uh, wrote that this was like the most disgusting, depraved thing ever, was people hanging like anvils from their nipples. Uh, And so I was not allowed to go. So I did not see Nine Inch Nails live. Although, Gareth, I want to bring this story up to our listeners, and we're going to get to Howard Beck in one second. We're in AP Calculus, right? Senior year. And there's like a sophomore Mm -hmm. in our class who's like clearly like a math genius who moves up super fast. And we're we're sitting there in class, and this kid has gone in in one semester from like hyper prep to like pure <laughs> nin black t shirt wearing, uh, you know, alterna kid, long hair growing out, can't put it behind his ears, you know, that kind of kid. Yeah, and he, I don't even know if you remember this, but he he was saying he started talking about Nine Inch Nails, and he thought of us as just like these preppy losers, and we're like, bro, we know Nine Inch Nails, like we're over Nine Inch Nails, and he goes, you guys don't know the music, and Gareth, you and I <laughs> sang him the entire <laughs> downward spiral. <laughs> he was so uncomfortable. <laughs> I don't know, I don't know what teacher this was that let us do this. I can picture him, I just don't know his name, and I don't want to guess. But we were mm-hmm. like, we got to a point where we were like, she's got the blood of reptiles, reptiles underneath, underneath their skin. <laughs> and this kid's like, okay, guys, stop. <laughs> Just stop. <laughs> I love the 90s, man. I love them. <laughs> I don't know, man. Like, 90s music, like, talking to you a lot, doing this interview today made me start thinking back on like, oh, all right. Yeah, I should pull out that Under the Pink CD that Brad mentioned in the interview. Oh, man, yeah, Tori Amos. All right, so we love talking to Howard Beck, uh, really great writer, uh, a guy who is on Zach Lowe's podcast all the time. He's the host of The Full 48. He writes for Bleacher Report. 
uh, hat checked by Bill Simmons every time that he gets a uh, a deeper uh, analysis of uh, you know the the Kyrie Irvings of the world um, than anybody else. We wanted to go deep on REM. They're a band that I love. My favorite band of all time. Uh, Howard's got a ton of interest in them, passion for them. We break down, uh, you know, so many angles on this band, including, you know, Mike Mills as the secondary singer, including deep cuts off the albums. We talk about how uh, Vanilla Sky could not ruin the song Sweetness Follows. Uh, This is for both the casual R.E.M. fan and the hardcore set. So uh, sit back, relax. Gareth, any, any, any parting shots as we get into this interview? Mm, enjoy I, even though it's as long as a movie it's probably worth a listen 100% and no distractions this week uh, other than just REM albums <laughs> and uh, we will be back with our with a, a, a in format show next week uh, enjoy the interview go REM Michael Stipe if you're listening bring it back one more time Chicago <laughs> I'll see you there Your Twitter bio, which is how I kind of note made the connection. Your Twitter bio says, "I miss REM," and I've been thinking about that for a while because, on the one hand, it could I, I'm I'm wondering whether it means that you miss them as creators of music and you wish they were still churning out music, or is it a is it a little bit of a deeper philosophical statement that we just miss uh, the band as a cultural force, uh, the band as a thoughtful participant in both, uh, music as well as, um, you know, just over the overall dialogue around pop culture and, and issues of the day and, and maybe something that the band represents more broadly. And I am fully admitting this might be me way overthinking, uh, the final, uh, you know, seven characters of your Twitter bio. To be honest, I didn't give it a lot of thought in terms of what level I missed them on. But now that you run down all the possibilities, I, I would just say, yes, all of it. I, I mean, mostly it's, I, I miss them as, a, as a, a musical presence, as a as the band that has been my favorite group um, for most of my adult life. And we can get into that later. But they have been, you know, as, as we all have, we have the soundtrack of our lives, whatever band or bands, artists that, that uh, we connected with on some level at various important stages of our lives and they stick with you and it, 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 and it, that meaning carries through. But REM was, I think my first, um, my first love in terms of a, a band in true adulthood and in high school and junior high, my favorite band was the cars. Like that was my group. The cars were a fun group. They're a really cool group and they were very distinct in their own right. And that was my band. And they broke up sometime while I was in college. And then I, I had a whole Genesis phase. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah. And including, including all the old Genesis, by the way, too. I had some friends who were like really big into Genesis and like they, you know, they were like my, you know, my, you know, like the, the newer Genesis was my gateway drug to the old Genesis. And then I got into this whole prog rock, you know, phase, which, you know, I guess friends don't let friends, you know, uh, overdose <laughs> on prog rock. But, um, and then Peter, and, and, and so, so through, through that, the, you know, part of my, um, like maybe late high school, early college years, there was a lot of Genesis and, and, and Peter Gabriel as well. Um, and then REM came after that and we can, we can get into that in, uh, later, but 
the bottom line is that this is the band that had been with me for the most important times from late college all the way through, you know, early years as a single adult finding my way in the newspaper industry through, um, you know, engagement, marriage, baby born, um, moving from um, initially Northern California to Southern California, which was a big move for me. And then Southern California from LA to New York, which was a huge move for me. And so, you know, and then you, you, you mark the time by the music. And for me, you know, it's, it's various albums, which the second I put them on or hear so- certain songs, they're placing me in the city I was living in or the newspaper I was working for or what my wife and I were doing or, you know, early on when we were dating. Like those, that's more than any other band um, because they've been my favorite band since, you know, uh, I don't know, I, I'm pegging it somewhere around 1991. Um, which I know is later than a lot of people came to them, but I miss them because there is no more new music. I miss them be- because I, I, I want to see them in concert more. Like I just, if, if, even if they never made another song and I know this is like, the, like what some bands consider death, we're not going to make new music. We're just going to tour on all our old stuff. And it's always going to be an oldies tour. And nobody wants to do that. Or a lot of bands don't want to do that. But I, 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 if they would just tour again, I don't like, I don't even need another new song. I, I just want to hear them play live again. Um, and so, yeah, I, I miss them on, on all those levels. And you mentioned culturally and, uh, you know, I think by implication politically, I, I miss that too. Although I think fortunately because they have, they're promoting the uh, 25th anniversary of automatic for the people. Stipe and Mills have been doing a ton of interviews lately and I've been trying to listen to every single one of them. And there they are weighing in on on the moment politically, which I'm I'm grateful for, and I'm I'm curious if they were to you know if they were to get in a studio right now, and I know they're not going to. I am curious what that might produce given the moment we're living in. Yeah, I think that's a great point. Um, they're my favorite band too for similar reasons, and um, I, I mean I guess let's let's go right to the the history you have personally. Like when what was the first interaction you recall with REM and and what imprint did it leave? Yeah, it's funny. So, you know, for the listeners, you know, you guys reached out to me back in the late summer and I said, yeah, I would, of course I would love to do this. I would love to talk REM. Uh, This just like, what a, what a phenomenal opportunity that my, my career in basketball writing has given me a chance to like, come on your podcast and talk about, you know, this other great passion, which is this band. (laughs) And you guys, you guys sent me like a slate of potential questions and times. So it, it, I've off and on kept coming back to this, 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 uh, document, this, uh, word document. Um, and, and, and so I've, I've, I've been mulling these things literally off and on for for the last couple of months and, and going back through albums and, and trying to just kind of rattle around all these things in my head about, okay, where, where, what was the entry point? And, so I, I don't know about you guys, but there are certain songs that are in the background of your, your life, right? Like you, you've heard them on radio or something, or somebody played it once, or was at a party or something, and you, don't, you didn't know what the band was, and you didn't know how to place it. And then later you, you discover the band, and you go, oh, I always loved that song. I didn't know that was them. And that's what happened with Fall On Me. So Fall On Me comes out in 1986, which I'm going to date myself now. That's the year I graduated high school. Um, I was in a squarely in a classic rock phase through high school and into my first <laughs> couple of years of college. Right. So it's all like Tom Petty and journey and Boston and Van Halen. 
Um, and of course, like I had my, my quirky band that became my favorite band, the cars. Um, but I was not listening to what we would call college rock radio in San Jose. I'm, I'm sure, um, I'm sure like San Jose state or, you know, one of the, the JC's had a probably a college rock state. I wasn't listening to it. So I wouldn't have heard a lot of that stuff, but fall on me must have been getting played somewhere. Maybe on the, there were, there was an alt rock station. Um, I don't know what they called it back then, but the, the, the station was called the quake, um, clever name for a uh, San Francisco station. Um, and maybe <laughs> I heard it there. I don't know when they first really registered in my consciousness, um, was, uh, when, um, the one I love becomes like a big radio hit, right? Like that was the one I love. And it's the end of the world as we know it. So now we're in 87. Now it's probably my freshman year of college. And, and that's when they really, um, I, I think are starting to get some of that mainstream play. And when they're really now on my radar, so it, it's, you know, now there are you know, a few albums in before, before I'm really aware of them, but I'm still, <laughs> I'm still stuck in like Peter Gabriel Genesis mode. I'm still listening to mostly classic rock and it was late college when out of time comes out. And it's, it's, it's weird for me to say as a hardcore REM fan, who is the age I am, you'd think I would have come to them much earlier. And I'm, 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 it's like, it's like my shame as an REM fan that I like, I can't like make the claim. I'm not going to lie and say, Oh, I was with them like from 83 when murmur came out or, you know, <laughs> I, I wish I could make that claim. You know, if I could time travel and relive my life, I swear I would be like on them from day one. <laughs> um, and I wish I could actually, cause I would have, they've, they've had such interesting creative changes over the years, shifts that it would have been more interesting to experience some of those shifts in real time. And I did for a lot of their discography and in fact, probably, you know, more than half of it, but those first few albums got by me before I was truly aware of them. So out of time, like a lot of people, I mean, out of time was a massive breakthrough album for them. Like, you know, by that time, you know, orange crush had been a big hit from green, obviously. And, and document had, had been a, a pretty big album for them. Um, but out of time is the breakthrough. And, and that's, mm. that's, for me, a major turning point for me, it's, it's my, it's my last year of college. Um, and I'm, I'm listening to that album constantly in our college newsroom, which is in the basement of this building. There's no daylight. There's just a bunch of like, you know, what we would now consider like very ancient, um, computers. They were just terminals called VDTs, video display terminals. They had no hard drives. Um, they were all connected to a central server. So I just remember being in this basement with no windows in our college newspaper newsroom, at UC Davis, listening to this album just on a constant, constant loop, um, listening to Out of Time. And so that's, that's the moment where everything turns for me because that's where I basically start to just break with classic rock entirely. Like, I'm not listening to those stations anymore. I'm not buying those albums anymore. Um, and, and that's where R.E.M. really, truly hooked me to the point where now it's like, okay, I, I can't wait for them to tour because they weren't touring then. I can't wait for the next album, which... Fortunately, came out you know a year later when Automatic for the People came out, um, and so that's it. Like that, that's where it got me. So losing my religion, you know, obviously one of their biggest hits of all time, maybe still their biggest hit of all time. Uh, just as it pulled in so many millions of others, then that's when I went from being aware of them, liking Orange Crush, you know, really digging how 
like revolutionary and, and, and edgy and crazy at the end of the world as we know it sounded like it's hard to remember now, but back when that song came out, there was nothing like it. Yeah. And the one I love was kind of, kind of commercial, but it yet in, in a very strange way, like people misunderstand the song. Right. So I went from having a more of a, like, I, I was like, REM curious to, to like full <laughs> or REM fan with, with out of time. So Howard, this like out of out of time is where I I joined in as well. My mother, uh, I was like twelve, thirteen when that came out. My mom was really into it, and I stole the CD from her. And I just remember listening to. I'd never heard anything like country feedback. It was just so dark and brooding, and I I, I don't know. I don't I don't think that I wasn't looking for something like that as a thirteen year old. But when I heard it, it was kind of one of those I'll, I'll never be the same again or music a whole wing of music opened up for me and that's what I think like REM when you're talking about college radio versus classic rock radio I think they were a gateway drug for a lot of people to move on from classic rock onto new sounds and new bands and things like that but I guess my question on all that is why do you think that is? I mean, they were making guitar rock. They were writing good lyrics. But for whatever reason, it just seemed totally different than anything that had come before. And so, and it even got classified and gets looked back as the band that started the college rock revolution, maybe them and the replacements. Why do you think that is? Oh, man. I don't, you know, questions like that, I sometimes feel like, like the people who are, um, People like Brian Koppelman, who I don't know if you guys are aware of. You know, oh, Brian yeah, Koppelman, the moment. You know, co-creator mm-hmm. of, the, of the show Billions. Yeah, so his podcast, The Moment. Brian, um, he, he's a friend. We've gotten to know each other here in New York because he's, he was, uh, he's, he's a, as, as all Knicks fans are, a long-suffering Knicks fan, but a season ticket holder. Mm-hmm. So we, you know, we became Twitter friends. We've, we've, we've met a few times. We've chatted. We've texted. And Brian also came from the music industry before he was a, a movie and, and TV uh, writer and director. And... Like his grasp of their musical significance and the moment in time that they broke through and what they meant. I was just re-listening earlier tonight before we recorded. I was re-listening to his podcast where he interviewed Mike Mills uh, several weeks back, and um, so he's. I feel like he has, he has great answers for questions like that. Um, I feel like I well, I, I, I just I want to clarify before you answer. Like I'm not asking. I'm asking because I'm genuinely curious as well. It's not just like oh, yeah. there is a correct answer and you have to find it. But as we are getting ready for this interview, like I went back and listened to some of this stuff. And even those old records that I totally missed out on as well, just based by age or what based on age or whatever, I was like, this is great music that'll live forever. And then I'm thinking to myself, but what was so different about this from Tom Petty or the cars or any of that stuff? But it is different, I think, is yeah. also there. You know, I think that's a factor. Yeah, I, it, I don't know. It's a really hard thing to define, right? Like, it, it's and, – and I think about, you know, my own shift in taste at that time, going from all this mainstream classic rock that I had been raised on and that, you know, that was all I'd ever really listened to. And I, I remember, you know, in high school, I was kind of actually even, like, resistant to – some of like the, you know, new wave and like, you know, bands like Oingo Boingo is like, ah, eh, they're kind of weird. You know, like the, a lot of the British bands. Um, 
Don't knock Dead Man's Party, Howard. Don't knock Dead Man's Party from the (laughs) Roddy Dangerfield Back to School movie. (laughs) Oh, yeah. One of the all-time, one of the all-time great scenes and one of the all-time great movies. But I didn't, like, I didn't have it within me to, like, I wasn't open enough to that, to, to really truly different sounds for, for that period of time in my teens, even to my, even into my late teens, I think. And which is a weird thing to say, because like the cars were a commercial band that was, but very new wave and quirky. And as I say, I think distinct in their right. And, and, you know, um, a lot of early Peter Gabriel that I was listening to in my early years of of college and, and Genesis, like, some of that stuff was really weird too. So I don't know. I, like I, I, I kind of liked weird, but I guess I just liked it within certain bounds. And then REM, like weird, isn't even the right um, descriptor for them. I think you know those, the, like their early stuff and and Murmur. You know it, that that defines college rock radio. Well, what does that mean? I, I guess it means that it wasn't like, like full bore commercial. It didn't have like it wasn't overproduced, and it didn't have this. Um, didn't have a certain sound or feel to it, but I, I don't know if there's any one thing that that set them apart aside from, you know, Michael Stipe writing uh, confounding lyrics and often like uh, slurring them, um, you know, and in their early albums especially, where you know you can't really understand it. So I think maybe it was just that, that idea that it was kind of inaccessible. And I think maybe by the time I came around to them or truly discovered them, or 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 just had that moment where it, where it just clicked where you know where the, the the chemistry between you as the listener and the and the and the band where all of a sudden you say oh i i i, I not only do i think i get this but like i'm, I'm curious I'm, i just i want to know more mm-hmm. like I, so when i so i i got out of time and then as i was so i, I love that that album so much i immediately went and then went and bought green which i'd only known from you know orange crush and stand stand yeah. which i don't actually like um <laughs> yeah. but um and but then I, I meet you know, I'm, 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 as I'm graduating from college now I've got a little more disposable income and I'm, I'm like I just started buying all the, all the back out so I immediately went out and I got uh, Murmur and I bought Eponymous and I bought Dead Letter Office and Document and Reckoning like as soon as I had the money to do it I was running to uh, there was the music chain called the Warehouse you know where W H E R E House oh yeah um, uh-huh. that was like our record our record store chain you know so that, so now I'm buying all the old stuff and, and I'm and even though a lot of that stuff doesn't necessarily sound that much like out of time. Uh, it's just something about the combination of Stipe's voice and his, his lyrics, the band's unique sound, whatever it was. I, I think, I think these things are sometimes just un, undefinable, whether we're talking about why, what sets them apart from other bands or what sets them off just in your own, your own musical taste. Uh, but it, it, it just, uh, yeah, for whatever reason that, that stuff spoke to me at that time. Undefinable. That's probably what makes it rock and roll. That's what makes it art. You know, I don't know what it is, but they've got it. And you don't. And and, and yeah. it's the same thing when you're in a, in a in an art gallery, right? Like you you know you're you're just kind of you know browsing, looking at all these things, and every so often you, you stop on one. You can go through past mm-hmm. there's a wall with like you know five pieces hanging on it, but there's one that stops you, and that's REM. That's yeah. there's all this music coming out and all these different styles that are emerging in the late eighties and early nineties and you've got your tastes and you think, you know what you like all of a sudden and then boom, like, Oh wait, no, this, this is different. It stopped me. And, and it, and it shifted all my musical taste and it was like, it was a major uh, turning point for me. Yeah. I'm glad you said that. It, that was a total turning point for me too. I, I, I kind of alluded to it earlier. That it was the first, 
I guess you would classify it as like alternative album. Uh, Gareth and I were in high school from '93 to '97, and so you know we were we were going from Tony 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 to uh, you know in middle <laughs> school to high school like actual grunge and alternative. Well, let me ask you. Uh, there's a lot of like uh, sort of quirkier questions I want to go. I want to get to, but for our listeners' sake, I do want to break down favorite albums, favorite eras. The, the, as we look at their entire catalog, because sadly they're one of these, um, they're one of these groups that that is complete uh, at, at the moment. Um, do, not to power rank the albums, but you know, power rank the albums, Howard. <laughs> Let's hear like how would you how would you lay down it from your perspective your favorite your favorite records? And yes, I am starting with albums because that's the way we consumed it back then. And I guess there's a philosophical question yeah. I'll start with. Would you count Eponymous as an album or, I mean, it was truly a greatest hits as opposed to, and for many people like who retroactively went back to the band's beginnings from a later vantage point, it became sort of a, a substitute for a lot of those early albums for right or wrong because there's a lot of great stuff on those albums. Do you count Eponymous as an, as, as an album or do you think of it as a greatest hits? I think as a, a, a part of me wants to be a purist and say that it's it's not that it, it that it's it's just it's a greatest hits album and so it should stand apart. Um, but because of the way I consumed REM or the way that I came to them, having bought you know having bought my first REM album being out of time, and then I, and I like I say it's hard to remember, but I think Green was maybe second, and then I'm going back and I'm just grabbing whatever is at the warehouse, the record store that they whatever they had. I didn't even like. I didn't know most of these songs or which one came first, unless I was flipping it over to look at the year. <laughs> I was just grabbing whatever was available uh, until I got them all. So for me, Eponymous was an album, um, and so I kind of always still think of it that way, even though yes, it's an early greatest hit essentially. Um, but to to your main question of, of of ranking the albums, like this is one of those things where like all right, I'm, I've I've got a, only one child, uh, so she's she's an only child. But the people, you know, that the, the whole cliche of you know ranking your kids or which is your favorite kid. My I don't oldest. Have that My oldest. That one. <laughs> You're all, wow. See, that's, well, my my uh, youngest is no is, double clutching. She's one man. She's a real pain in the ass, Howard. I'm just gonna say it right now. But they're both great. <laughs> all right, fair. Um, so so ranking them, I, I feel like is is almost like offensive. Um, because I just, I just, you know, I love the band. I love pretty much everything they've done, but I'd be lying if I didn't say that like some albums felt a little bit like duds or, or, or like, I just, or I just don't listen to as much. And, mm -hmm. and you, so the way I started to think about it was what are the albums that if I went back and looked at like my old iTunes library, you know, had that counter that showed you how many times you'd listen to a song or an album. Um, mm -hmm. So I guess I, I would do it this way. I, I did, I did finally parcel this out. So the four albums that I think I've probably listened to the most total over the course of, of the last, you know, 30 years or whatever. God, that sounds really, uh, 30 years saying that out loud makes me feel very old. Um, <laughs> uh, maybe 25 years. Um, Automatic for the People, yeah. Document, Out of Time, and Life's Rich Pageant. Like those are the four and then three of those, of course, are, or, or two of those are more the modern ones and two are, the, are from, the, from the, like the, the older part of the library, the, you know, the IRS years. Um, but those are my four. Automatic for the people, document, out of time, life's rich pageant. Not necessarily in that order. Um, and if I were to, to, to group, a, if I were to throw together a second group, and this, this is a quirky group, by the way, 
And by the way, quick aside, I know everybody puts murmurs, uh, murmur in, in their, uh, their top five or their number one. I feel like people do that. Like that's that cheap way of saying, well, if you're a true REM fan, you got to go with like the first album and, yeah. and because, because of the places that it, that it has, but okay. One, I, I wasn't listening to them when it came out. So it, it, it'd be a little artificial. And even going back though, I love that album. Um, I, it's it's just not the same for me. Also, by the way, I think it's really weird to say that uh, like a group's first album when they've had whatever they've had 12, 15 albums. If you say the first was their best, really, they never like they never got that good again. Like I think that would be actually be a kind of a sad statement. To make a basketball parallel, and I'm not gonna we're not we don't talk sports, but uh, it reminds me of like this current Warriors group. I think in or, or the Jordan Bulls. Like yes, those first championships for those teams was uh, was great. But the subsequent years and the things that they did and the storylines that came after were so much richer that I think in hindsight, people will look at that as a formality. So yes, Murmur makes the cut because on, on lists of most important songs, Radio Free Europe always pops up because it was so different and it heralded the yeah. start of, of the college rock and the 80s rock movement. But I, just, I'm agree, I agree with you. If you sit down and listen to Murmur, you're gonna, halfway through you're going to say... All right, like let's jump ahead. Like, like go, 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 go. Well, it's it's just that it's just that they evolved as any great band does, and you know they experimented and they swerved and they they tried different things. And Michael's songwriting got stronger, and his um his his, his enunciation <laughs> got better. Um, he learned his <laughs> voice in different in different ways. Um, that even even if it were just about Michael Stipe's range. And the way different ways he used his voice, the different um, voices he had uh, for any given song, and then the way he could change mood and tone, like that, that expands over the course of their their career. My my second four are uh, New Adventures in Hi-Fi, which I know not everybody loves, um, and and I've got it's a very strange group. Monster is in there, Up is in there, and I know nobody likes Up, but I love. I up. like Up. And I like Up. I like Walk on Afraid and some of those other songs on that album. I like Up. Love Walk on Afraid. Yeah. Can we talk about Up for a minute? Of course. Up, up has been Up is like like the redheaded stepchild of, of like the REM discography. Like it's and I feel like it's been unfairly maligned. It was um, you know the, the the first album after Bill Berry leaves the band, and so it definitely is very different. And his absence is felt, and I think people just were ready to pounce on it. Um, it's a beautiful album. It's a really melodic album. And, um, I, I, you know, I, I don't get like the, the, the hate for it. I mean, it had, you know, it, it did have a couple of, of songs that did make the, the mainstream. I mean, you know, day sleeper was, was a hit. Um, but there's just a lot of, I think really beautiful songs on, on that album. And it, it is moody and it is a little slow, but, but it's moody and slow and interesting. And, um, and the, you know, it, I don't know. I, I, I'm, I really love that album. I, like, I even love the song, uh, hope, which is one of the strangest songs they've made. I just like, it's, it's, it's <laughs> yeah. got that catchy little, you know, uh, tune in the background of that. Uh, I don't know what that is, a, a keyboard riff, but, um, it's just interesting. I, like, I think about that when I listen to that song, I always think about it. Like what is going on here? Um, <laughs> anyway, um, uh, Shout, shout out to Up. What I love about Michael Stipe as a frontman is that he is... And Howard, Howard, you correct me if you think I'm misreading this, but I've always felt that he is both 
really accessible and never accessible. Like at certain times you're listening to him and you're thinking, I just, I am in your place. I am like on night swimming. I'm in, I'm in the water. I am feeling the moonlight. I am right where you are. And then there's a certain turn of phrase and you're like, but you are dealing with something I am not dealing with. <laughs> and I just know, don't bring it up. <laughs> like, and I think he's, he's fascinating like that. But that, but, and that's what's great about R.E.M.'s music. And, and, you know, a lot of that is about Stipe himself and the, and the lyrics and the, the stories that he's, he's telling or the, the feelings he's expressing is that it's exactly what you said. You're simultaneously, it's simultaneously resonating with you because it feels like something you can relate to. And at the same time, you really 99% of the time have no idea what he's actually talking about. And, <laughs> You know, certain songs are very much more straightforward, right? Like Everybody Hurts, which, again, not a personal favorite of mine. I understand how meaningful it is to a lot, a lot of people around the world and, and, and how big of not just a hit it was, but how powerful it was for a lot of people. Not one of my favorites. That's a very straightforward song, yeah. right? Like there's, there's, no, there's, no, um, there's, there's nothing hidden there. There's no puzzle to unlock. I, but I guess it's the, the songs that... that are more puzzling that, that I am where I, I love them musically. And I love like, uh, there's a, there's a, a, a tone or a feel or a mood that they create. And meanwhile, I'm going like, I love this song, but I don't know what it's about. And it's fine that I don't know what it's about, but I'm going to think about it a little bit while I'm listening to it. Um, you know, like the lifting on uh, the, the opening song and reveal again, an album that, you know, most people, I don't think thought a lot of, but yeah. I really dig that song, the lifting. Um, I, I, I'm not exactly sure what it's about. Some sort of seminar. Like, I don't know if it's like some, you know, new agey, like S thing or, you know, whatever it is. If it's a business seminar, if there's a seminar. They say, say the word seminar. That's about all you know. Other than that, <laughs> other than the, 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 the music has a certain uh, vibe to it and it's called the lifting and it feels like it's lifting you. And, it, and it's, um, it, it's more the mood it, it creates or the feelings it, it kind of brings out in you without necessarily having to know exactly what the story is. Well, I'm a, I'm a member of, I'm going to admit this publicly. I'm a member of some internet record chat rooms, <laughs> nerd boards, shout out to waxidermy.com. Um, and somebody said on waxidermy at one point about Bob Dylan they said that he realized early on that he was good enough that he was going to last a while. And the only way to do that was to just sort of become as inscrutable as possible. And I don't think Michael Stipe took it to Dylan-esque levels, but I think when you're talking about him as a front man, he does have lyrics that will go into very impenetrable or personal places that kind of aren't meant for you, but he's letting you in at the same time. And that is the sort of thing that can give you a lifetime of, of, of interpretation and revisiting and the, the meanings can shift as you get older and you learn more things that maybe he knew when he wrote it. I also think he did. He was an exceptional front man for just the, the basic front man qualities, like all the performances where he was dancing like a weirdo for himself. He, and I just pulled this up as we were talking about this, one of my favorite rock publicity photos ever. And look, I am the, I am the, not the biggest REM fan. And I'm not the biggest REM fan on this call by a wide margin, but I love rock and I love music and I love their music. But 
at the same time, one of my favorite publicity photos ever taken is just where he has written the names of the band members on his hand. And it just says, Buck, Mills, Barry, me. And he's covering his eyes or his face. I mean, yeah. that that manages to be so personal in the fact that he wrote me. But at the same time, he makes it so mysterious by covering his mouth in one photo or his eyes in another. And I just think that he had all the frontman qualities that again, going back to the elusiveness of it, like you don't know what they are, but it's not just that he had a good voice. He also got better as he went along or he was fearless about experimentation and he could write universally private lyrics, which is damn near impossible. But he also just, he had the thing, like he just had this presence that you were like, whatever that guy's doing, I'm going to watch it because it's probably the most entertaining thing going on right now. Yeah. Um, it, it is funny too, cause you, you use the word inscrutable, which I feel like like they, that word was like made for Stipe's lyrics. Like every single thing ever written, every tribute about them. It's always mm-hmm. the word inscrutable has to come up somewhere because, um, it just, it just per- perfectly encapsulates, uh, their music and, and his lyrics. He, as, he's like, he's a really interesting front man because, you know, He's obviously not in the traditional, like, big-time rock star mold, right? He's not David Lee Roth. Um, he's, he, he feels a little, like, somehow shy and vulnerable up there, but at the same time, he's dancing in, in, in completely his own way. He's got these, these strange gyrations <laughs> up there. He's, in, he's enjoying himself, and as soon as the songs are over, you can hear his uncomfortableness again. As, as, as a person who probably was much more introverted before becoming a rock star, because all of a sudden when it's time to talk, he's just doing those, you know, he's got that monotone and those choppy sentences. And he, he doesn't, he doesn't sound like he wants, he's not going to sit there and tell stories. He doesn't really want to talk that much. He just wants to get to the next song, which is funny. Actually, I remember the first time I saw them. Um, that was one of his go-to things. It was like, you know, song ends, people clap, whatever. And he goes, um, uh, yeah, thanks. And, um, here's <laughs> Thank another you. Song. and he would, <laughs> yeah. he would literally say, here's another song. And he was, it was multiple times. That was his, hey, it was the funniest thing. And it, he's not, even though he's also very comfortable being politically outspoken again, it's, 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 it's he chooses, chooses to do it. It's on his terms and it's still going to be in that, that odd low monotone of his, um, where he sounds almost almost passionless, but, but the words are not. But but his his tone, because as you as you mentioned earlier, he doesn't raise his voice, he doesn't scream, he's not real animated. But when he gets going as a frontman for the band, he's incredibly animated. And there's no like if you um, if you couldn't make out his features and you just saw his movements, you would know that's Michael Stipe because nobody else yes. moves like that. Although I will say this, I will say this. I saw the national play um, a month or so ago here in New York, and um, uh, God, the front man's name is, is escaping me for the moment. But he had a few little weird gyrations where I went, "That was like a little stipe, like he's doing this weird thing with his arm and, and like his and his hips." I'm like, <laughs> he's he's almost channeling Michael Stipe, or maybe it's wishful thinking on my part. <laughs> How do we compartmentalize Mike Mills's role as a? a quasi co-frontman. And I say those words very carefully because I've done a lot of soul searching about the songs that Mike Mills leads on and the songs where he's kind of a, a 1A to Stipe, where he's really driving the melody just as much with him. 
he's he's I mean, I love I love Mills and I like a lot of those songs. So I don't want this to sound condescending, but I feel like he's a wonderful ying to Stipe's yang in that Michael Stipe, he always sounds like he's about to weep. <laughs> like he he is all emotion and and flair yeah. and everything. And Mills is like I am Superman. <laughs> like he's just like I'm giving it to you, man. <laughs> like we are missionary, but it's such it's so great. Like I I I I think that that's their interplay to me is really fascinating, and I think adds another level to the band in a way that I think few groups ever really had. Because usually you had one sort of alpha frontman, and you didn't have this sort of. Uh, co-authoring of certain really signature songs in their catalog. Yeah, um, and it's funny because because you were one of the one of the questions you had thrown in in that uh, in that word document two months ago was you know how do we feel about songs where where Mike Mills is lead and and in parentheses you put in all caps be honest Howard as if the <laughs> the expectation was that we should all be killing Mike Mills's singing voice. Um, thing is like I love Texarkana, like yes, I freaking love that mm-hmm. song. And 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 don't go back to Rockville and near Wild Heaven, and so like I his songs are are songs that I really dig, and I've never really thought about like well what if what if Michael had sung that instead of Mike like it doesn't it doesn't even occur to me it just the character of those songs to me is defined by them being Mike Mills songs, um, and no he does not have the traditional um, lead singer voice. And he even said, so again, I, I was re-listening to uh, Koppelman's podcast, uh, his interview with Mike Mills, which I highly recommend to you guys if you haven't listened to it, and I recommend to, to your listeners. Um, it's, 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 it's great in so many ways, but Mills addresses this aspect where he says basically that he knows he's a really good harmony guy. Like He, he feels like he, that, that's a real strength. Like I'm, I, I, know, I know that I'm, I'm great at that. I also know that I don't have anywhere near the range of Michael Stipe. And uh, he he actually uh, described it in a really interesting way, talking about the like the, the oscilloscope. Like if you, the the oscilloscope shows you know the the range of of, um, of of sound waves, that his would be very very narrow, and and Stipe's would be massive. Um, so he knows he knows exactly what he is, and he even says like he he never Koppelman asks him, did you ever want to be the guy who was like leading a band? And he said no, that's why I chose bass basically instead of like rhythm guitar. <laughs> like I I was gonna that's the guy I was gonna be. And um, so no, I, I I I love I love the songs that are the, the Mike Mills songs. I love his harmonizing with Stipe. They, it's it's interesting that um, the way bands sometimes come together like that, where those two their voices play off each other really well. Yeah, and that's not something you can anticipate when when you get a band together, right? Like that's you can't plan for that. You just you know friends come together or they introduce each other to other guys and oh let's let's play and and it takes off. But you 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 couldn't have planned for it, and yet. I feel like their voices play off each other perfectly. And, and you know, and I want to I want to ask you about your deep cuts because we've talked about a lot of the songs that people would know, but there's a lot of songs in their catalog that I think are uh, just I mean amazing that I don't think get the most credit. And Gareth and I are huge fans of the band Jane's Addiction. That's like my second favorite band after REM, which uh, uh, I know weird. Um, but like all their hits are like not <laughs> the best Jane's Addiction songs. So, but but REM has like I think their hits got the credit they deserved. But if I'm going down the list, I'm, I'm looking at yeah. for me it's it, it's like 
sure, Everybody Hurts gets a ton of publicity, but like on that album, Drive and Trying to Breathe are like my two of my right. favorite songs. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, I, those are great. So, yeah, so Automatic for the People Alone has a bunch of songs that didn't, were not popular, did not get airplay, that um, people may know um, if they if they had the album or, or maybe from a soundtrack or two. But but like um, Sweetness Follows is one for sure that 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 from the moment I first heard it, and this is very rare by the way. Most most albums, right? You got to listen to a couple times songs. Sweetness Follows the very first time I heard it. That opening, I'm not even mm-hmm. sure what instrument that is. Um, it it it's so powerful and. Uh, the, the song is beautiful and sad and moving, and I've never once listened to Sweetness Follows without like feeling it. But even at the tail end of the album, so Night Swimming, which I think maybe some people know, followed immediately by Find the River, which interesting that they end with like two song themed or uh, 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 water themed songs at the end. Night Swimming is a gorgeous song, and then Find the River is a beautiful song right, right after it. Like the the whole second half of the album. Um, is is just so strong uh which is why like automatic for the people is is often regarded as as their greatest album on monster yeah. i don't i don't uh i don't sleep i dream and let me in are two songs that like no yeah. one who ever likes rem ever brings up to me but i'm like i swear by those songs and i know monster is like to me monster is the russell westbrook of rem albums it's so hard and so energetic <laughs> and so wonderful and yeah. amazing in certain times but at the end of the day you just walk away and you're like it's a little out of control <laughs> like, you know it's great but like i just i don't know exactly what to make of it but those two songs are are so amazing yeah. and i I go also go back to um, I, I'm with you in that sometimes like the the the, the pinnacle songs of REM like uh, on Document you go back and you look at um, uh, you know you go back and look at End of the World as we know it which is so great but finest work song rocks just as hard like and it kicks off the album and it's got that yeah. that driving beat and yet no one would know finest work song but I'm like if that's the first REM song you've ever heard you'd be like hell yeah I'm in on this band like let's do this. Oh, hell yeah. No, and I'm glad you mentioned it because they were, that was another one of those songs where I mentioned early on about songs that like you kind of knew them, but you didn't know who sang them initially, and then you get <laughs> to know the band later, and then you find out. Yeah. Finest Work Song was one of those that was somewhere in my memory bank where I went, oh, fuck yeah. Like, I love this song. I, like, I'm glad it's these guys. Like, that was and back when in my discovery phase when I'm buying up all their, their older albums. Finest Work Song is fantastic. Like, that, uh, that and like um, Begin the Begin. Oh yeah, like same kind of thing. Just just kicks ass to kick off the album, um, and so like there's the, like those are ones where um, if you if you thought of REM as kind of ah oh, they're a little quirky or they're a little um, you know you know too out there or maybe if you just only seized on some of the commercial stuff like like uh, everybody hurts and you thought oh they're too sappy or whatever. Like if you didn't know their older stuff, if you had never heard "Begin the Begin," um, or if you'd never heard uh, "Finest Work Song," yeah, th- those are songs that like any person who who has any appreciation of great music or, or rock of any stripe should love. No question. Is there a song that you think is just um, something that I guess would be the most meaningful for you? In that I know a lot of people look back like uh, for example 
I, when I was in in high school, like doing sports and stuff like that, I would listen to. I'm really dating myself. I'd listen to Automatic for the People on cassette tape, and so I think it's. I think the breakdown was was it Monty got a raw deal that was like the first song on the second side of Automatic for the People. It might be. Um, in, so. in any case, like I always associate that with like I fell asleep on the bus, I woke up, I flipped over my tape, and like boom, I'm back in. Uh, is there a song that's like got a, a personal meaning to you? It doesn't necessarily need to be the best song or something you have to defend musically, but just there's that that it strikes you in that way that you just say, like it takes me right here and there to this place. I mean. Oh- a bunch of them take me somewhere. And so it's hard to, but but none of them are like, like, you know, there are people who, who, again, like when everybody hurts, there are people who say, Oh, well, this hit me at this this time in my life when I was really down. And so it just, you know, I don't have that specifically, but I will say that like automatic for the people as a whole, not only is it, you know, the, the second, it's the first REM album that comes out after I'm now a certified diehard just passionate fan for them. But it also comes out at a time in, in 92 when you know, I'm out of college now. It's my first year out of college. Um, and I'm, I'm, you know, automatic for the people is a lot about loss. Um, you know, death and, um, you know, the death of, I think there's, there's like literal death and there's death of relationships. I think there's, there's so many levels of it. And so people relate to that album, um, in in various ways. And so if an album hits you at a certain time and, and it's hitting the right themes and it sticks for me, you know, there was no specific like uh, loss at that time, except that it was my first full year out of college outside of that protective bubble. Like I, I hated gra- graduating college. I wanted to stay forever, work at the campus newspaper. <laughs> that, you know, like everybody yeah. had that feeling, right. To some extent, like nobody really wants. So that's to, to the extent that, that, that the album is, is hitting these very somber themes. Um, I do think that it struck me at a time when, yeah, I had this weird, you know, it wasn't like a breakup or it wasn't like the loss of a family member. It was like maybe the loss of of, of that last shred of, of, of innocence and, and protectiveness, protectiveness that you feel when you're still like just in school. And you're, you know, even though I, I was mostly self-supporting by then, but now all right, I got to get a real job. I, all right, I got my first job, you know, working for a small town newspaper, but it still was this, this sense of like, I lost all the, the things that I've built up over those last several years. Um, the friends they made, uh, you know, uh, in college and especially at the college paper is, and then, and, and we, we produced this newspaper every day, Monday through Friday, you know, f- uh, you know, five days a week, like there was a real bond between us all. And to have to leave that, um, that was my loss. That was my, and so automatic for the people was that moment in time. And it will, you know, it always reminds me of, you know, where I was living then, or, um, just, just that, that, that feeling I had in adjusting to this new reality, so um, there's that. There's, you know, Around the Sun, which, um, you know, came out in 2004. <clears throat> That's the same year that I moved to L.A. to New York. And, and it's funny because the first track, that the first uh, released uh, single was Leaving New York. And I was going to right. New York. But, <laughs> but you know, I just think is, is against thinking about this, this, um, these feelings of, 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 of separation and having to leave things behind. And for me, you know, yes, literally it was the reverse, but figuratively it was, it was the same feeling. Um, the first time I'd, you know, moved out of California and lived anywhere other than California where I'd 
grown up. And so, um, and I just, I also just love that there it was a New York themed song at the time that I was moving to New York. So that was like the soundtrack of, of that, that, uh, summer and that first year of living out here. Um, and it was a highly political album and that was, you know, the year that, that, uh, W got elected a second time and there was a lot of, of, you know, so that was the end of the world as we knew it. Well, funny. So funny you mentioned that. So the, the election happens, <clears throat> obviously, first Tuesday in November. Um, REM was playing at Madison Square Garden. I think it was literally a week later, days to a week later. And so here we are, like a lot of people still just kind of, you know, feeling the, the, the feelings of, of, of that election and, you know, um, all that went with it. And we go to the garden and you know, here it is. I'm still, and by the way, I'm, I'm still feeling that, that just, just the dizziness of having moved 3000 miles and adjusting to New York. And, you know, uh, I don't remember who played the, the, the opening act or whatever, but you know, lights go down, REM comes on stage and immediately you hear the, the, the drums for the, it's in the end of the world as we know it. And I'm like, Holy shit. They're opening the show with It's the End of the World as We Know It. <laughs> and they, the song that always closes, you know, it's always in the encore, often the last song played, and they opened with it. And it sent a fucking chill through me, like, wow. Like, there was no more powerful statement, and there was no question why they were opening with it the week after the election. How about a band whose catalog is so deep that It's the End of the World as We Know It is like, I don't know, that's... Top 10, you know what I mean? Like you wrote that song, which is unlike any rock song that I've ever heard. Um, and people started to do their own versions of lists, but still like the references and the delivery and everything about it and the overall message. And then you just, you're like, yeah, you know, it's, it's up there. End of the world as we know it is my favorite song ever. And I don't have a problem saying that. I like, wow. I'd put it up there with, I'd put it up there with, um, you know, Jane's Addiction, Three Days, or like Tori Amos, uh, you know, Precious Things. I, I'm real. I re- I'm a real lo- '90s loser, guys. I'm just gonna say this right now. Or, or Tupac <laughs> and say, Dre, Tupac and Dre, breath. California Love, Non West Coast Remix Edition. <laughs> uh, but I like that song. For example, like this happened tonight. So. I told my wife, I was like, hey, I'm taping tonight about R.E.M. And she, she instantly, like, instant eye roll. She's like, peace. Put the baby to bed, and then we'll talk about your taping about R.E.M. And and I was like, I put on End of the World as We Know It for my daughter, who's four, my older daughter. And she she took, like, three seconds to hear the the drums and then just danced. Now, to me, I think of wow. the song as, like, bittersweet and reflective and whatever, but it's also a jam. Um, but Howard, I, I what I from that from that perspective, like, do if I said to you, if I put a gun in your head and said, do you have a favorite song? Like, can, do you have a favorite song, or is it just too hard? I think it's too hard. Um, it really is. Like, it, it's you know, the, there's so many great ones for so many different reasons that, like, again, because they, they evoke different feelings and. Um, yeah, it's just, it's, it's too tough. Um, like if, if I, if I tried really hard, I could give you maybe 10 or 15, but you know, and, and 
like one, it, it, like even five, like it's just, it's just too hard to, to cut off. But you know, some of the, some ones we've, we've mentioned, like, you know, if I had to do a top like 15, like, you know, fall on me is, is in there and finest work song is in there and sweetness follows is probably in there. And, um, you know, I mean, walk unafraid might be in there. Um, you know, if I, like, I've never tried to do the exercise and if I did, I would, I would just like, uh, start throwing things against the walls. I'm trying to make cuts. Um, but it, you know, it's, it's, you know, it's harder than when you do those like theoretical all, you know, the, the all-star teams or at the end of the year when I'm actually voting on the all NBA teams and I'm having to sit there and start crossing guys out and then uncrossing them out and putting them back in. Like, <laughs> like that's, that's how it would be. be this, this, this painful um, exercise of trying to figure out, you know, well, they all, they're all deserving who, you know, but, but, but they can't all fit. Um, I don't know. It, I, I think that would be, um, it would, it would just be too tough to, uh, to do. I, I certainly couldn't, couldn't name a, a single one REM song as, as the, as the best. Well, to close out, um, from a concert perspective, I've only seen them once and it makes me so sad. Uh, but I saw them on the monster tour in Columbus, Ohio. What, what are like one or two signature moments of seeing them live that may stand out to you? Yeah. So, I, I, again, because you guys had, had, you know, sent me some of these questions. And so I actually went and, and, and tried to figure out like how many times I, I've seen them. Um, and the, 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 the basic answer is not enough. Like I wish I'd seen them two, three, four, five times as many. Um, I saw them seven times. I figured out seven times. Um, and the very first time was on that monster tour. So remember they didn't tour on out of time. So I, I my, my REM fandom, you know, really clicks with out of time. They don't tour. Uh, Automatic for the People comes out, Attic is this amazing album, they don't tour. And so it's not until 1995 that they're touring on Monster. I saw them at the Shoreline Amphitheater in Mountain View, California, that's in the Bay Area, near where I had grown up in San Jose. And the significance of that show, not only being my first R.E.M. concert, that was the first show that they played with Bill Berry back after they had taken a break after his aneurysm, brain aneurysm. I had a T-shirt that I bought from my show in Columbus that had all the dates they missed in Europe that were crossed off. Yeah, I was on a budget, so I bought the bootleg monster T-shirt in the uh, parking lot, um, <laughs> which was like the, the bad, silk, bad, a bad silk screen of the monster uh, <laughs> you know, uh, uh, CD cover, right? Um, but that was like a moment because it was, you know, you, you know Bill Barry, you know, I think narrowly escaped death probably. Um, and, and they're, you know, the, the, cult, the whole tour is in, in question. And when they, you know, when, when Barry was, was healthy enough to tour again, and when they were ready to start up it, lo and behold, that's the show that I had tickets to. So I saw their first show back. Um, I, I don't remember much in detail, except that there were some of those like cool moments where they're talking about it and, and, and having Bill back there. And um, I think Stipe at one point, like, I think when they introduced and see the world as we know it, it was introduced with something like, uh, hey, like Stipe saying something like, hey, Bill, do that thing you do. Or it's some, some, some like little funny throwaway <laughs> line like that. And that's where he does the, you know, and they, they break into it. Um, so that one was, was special for obvious reasons. Um, it happened to be my first show. Um, I saw them uh, at the Hollywood Bowl. And I remember specifically thinking when they're singing imitation, when he's singing imitation of life and he says, that's Hollywood, like that being a, a big thing yeah. for the, uh, the LA, uh, <laughs> like everybody kind of going nuts. I saw them uh, 
twice at the uh, at the Greek theater on back-to-back nights. That was the only time I ever did that. Like with any band, I'd, I'd never done that where you hear people like who are, especially like, you know, deadheads, they see them like night after night after night. I, I bought tickets for both nights at the Greek. Um, and um, so we saw them two, two consecutive nights there. And I saw them twice at the Garden in, here in New York in, in 04 and 08. So I mentioned the first show at the Shoreline, Bill Berry's first first back i mentioned them opening in 04 with it's the end of the world as we know it but my the biggest concert moment i had for them and this is my favorite personal rem story um even though it's not that that personal it's just just uh it's just kind of goofy in 2003 or somewhere in there um no it's 2003 2003 i get an email i joined their fan club by the way so for ten dollars a year when rem was still a, a band um, for ten dollars a year, you could join their fan club, which sounds like the goofiest thing that you would do, like something a ten-year-old does to join, like you know, <laughs> the Superman club, and you and you get a secret decoder ring or something. But for ten dollars a year, you got uh, every uh, December they would send you this little holiday pack, and it would be a CD with um, a song or two that were either deep cuts or live or different versions of a song that hadn't been released. There was a, there was in fact a sticker, a little REM sticker. There was a calendar with a bunch of like, you know, REM artwork on it. Um, and you'd get a newsletter like three, four times a year, like a physical newsletter. And so I was in the REM fan club because we're going to love REM. Right. So, but the one thing I did not know was this, that one day in 2003, an email would drop in saying, um, fan club only show at the Avalon in Hollywood. Tickets go on sale tomorrow at 10 a.m. Holy shit. So I, that day, I'm sitting at home. I'm, I'm living in Hermosa Beach, I'm, and, I'm, and I've got my like, little Nokia brick phone in one hand and my cordless phone in the other, the house phone, and I've, I've, I've put in the number that you have to dial for these tickets on both phones, and I'm just doing that thing with your thumb on both hands, going click, 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 like hang up, redial, hang up, redial, hang up, redial, until I finally got through. And when I got through and she's like, you know, I don't know how they answer, but whatever, you know, you know, REM fan club line, you know, whatever, you know, how many tickets do you want to buy for the show at the Avalon? I, I thought my, I, 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 I must've screamed. I think my head exploded. Like, <laughs> I, I, all of this, by the way, just for the honor of like forking over probably 200 bucks, um, because this was a fan club only show. There was very limited tickets, but I felt like I just won the fucking lottery. Like it was, it was like, if you're listing single greatest moments of my life, like, right. Like, you know, day of my wedding, my, my daughter being born, um, getting the job at the New York times, like the, this moment of getting these tickets and then the show itself was right up there. So I, I do get these <laughs> tickets. I, uh, my, my wife and I go and we see them at the Avalon theater. I don't really know how many people it held. I think it was probably no more than a thousand, um, maybe a little over that. And it was standing room only. So the distance between me and the stage was maybe 50 feet. Um, it was the, one of the single coolest moments of my life. Um, being in this tiny venue with my favorite band, this band that fills stadiums with tens of thousands of people, being there a, a, a stone's throw away, like a, a half of a stone's throw away. Like um, it, it was... And uh, so I've, I've told this story a couple of times to, to friends and, and somebody actually found like there it's, it's online now. Like I found it. I, I, I bookmarked it. It's um, somebody put it on YouTube. Um, I, and, and so the whole, the whole set is there. 
and um and I looked it up and then, you know there's there's a uh, there's a uh, website uh, setlist.fm that does set lists cuz I so I wanted to find it cuz what I really remembered about that show was that because it was a fan club only show they didn't feel like they had to hew to all just like the big hits and so so here's the set list I, I pulled it up they opened with finest work song which right off the bat phenomenal cuz great fucking song and then these days which Again, um, Life's Rich Pageant, uh, great song, and it's not you know it's, it's one that they're they're never playing these days when they're playing a big stadium. They played um, Exhuming McCarthy, they played Sweetness Follows, uh, they played World End, um, they played Walk Unafraid. The encore was Life and How to Live It. Welcome to the Occupation. Oh, Welcome to the uh, Occupation! Damn, how you're killing me. <laughs> yeah. Uh, they played Final Straw, which must have been one of the first times they played that, because that, that ended up being on the album uh, around the summer, which came out the following year. Um, and they closed with Imitation of Life. But they, they mostly, you know, played, you know, uh, you know the, 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 the deeper cuts. Um, you know, World Leader Pretend, Strange Currencies was in there. Um, At My Most Beautiful, which, by the way, uh, special uh, distinction for this one. At My Most Beautiful, which you mentioned earlier, which was on up uh, was that was like the song that my wife and I danced to at our wedding also. So that one, like if you talk about songs that are truly like meaningful to me, like that was, that was a big one there. Um, but that, that concert that night, this fan club only show being in that, that intimate little uh, space um, was, was the greatest thing. And all I could think after that night was, man, I hope they do this again. And then we moved to New York and I thought, well, man, if they're ever going to do it, it's only going to be in New York or LA. Those would be the two places. So I'm in New York. It's, it's good. Like, it's fine. Like if they ever do it again, I'm in the right place for this. And I'm all, like always waiting like that. One of these days that email was going to drop again with the fan club only show call this number. And it just never happened. They never did it again. And then, <laughs> you know, um, I, I saw them, you know, twice in New York at, in, at the garden Oh four and Oh eight. And then they break up in 11 and it's like, and all of a sudden you, you have this realization like, wow, I'm, I'm not only am I not going to get another one of those awesome band club shows, but I'm just, I'm never going to see these guys play live again. And um, I'll, I'll end with this quick story. So the way I find out about the breakup um, in 2011, this is during the NBA lockout, right? So I'm working for the times I'm covering the lockout day in, day out. I, myself and a handful of other reporters are staking out all these various hotels in New York where the players union and the league are meeting. And that's my life just for day, days and weeks and months on end. And one day my editor calls and says, listen, um, the Red Sox are in this terrible tailspin. We need to send you up to Boston for a couple of days. I'm like, man, come on. I'm like, I'm covering this major labor battle. The, 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 the entire NBA season is at stake here this is what I should be doing. Like, no, 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 the Red Sox. And this was a year. If you look it up, like the Red Sox, I don't remember how many game lead they had going into September, but it's now mid September and they're spiraling out of control. Um, and, and they ended up missing the playoffs and they ended up having a major, you know, the, the whole thing imploded. So there's the chicken and beer year. Yes. Yeah. So, so they, so they sent me up there and it's last minute. So there's no hotels in Boston available. Boston is an expensive city. Anyway, the best of times I find some little holiday in, What's the, the, not the holiday and the one that's the da- one down front of the holiday Inn express that one <laughs> in like Braintree, Massachusetts. Ugh, Braintree. Ugh. Yeah. The very last stop on the T that's their, you know, their, their, their subway uh, system, their train system. So the very last stop, but the, but the holiday Inn express is nowhere near that, that space neither. So I got to get like the shuttle driver to take me out to the shuttle stop in Braintree 
or to the train stop in Braintree so that I can then get into Boston so I can go cover this Red Sox game as a basketball writer who doesn't really write about baseball. And so I'm not that happy anyway being up there. Um, and I'm standing on this platform in the middle of nowhere in Braintree, and there's nobody else there. It's just me at this final stop on, on the line waiting for a train. And I've got my BlackBerry in hand. Oh, this is so sad. I did not have an iPhone. And I'm, and I'm trying to pass the time till the train comes, and I'm flipping through Twitter, and I follow REMHQ, which is their Twitter account, and it says something to the effect of, REM calls it a day, and then there's a link. And I thought, well, that's a curious tweet. I, yeah, it doesn't mean CD. what I think. <laughs> I, I, was, I, 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 was, I was absolutely, like, uh, partially in, in panic and partially, like, in, in denial, like, REM calls it a day could not possibly mean literally like they were like, that was it. And then I clicked the link and sure enough, there's a, you know, a, a, you know, a paragraph or whatever that says that that's it. They're breaking up. And I'm, so here I am by myself standing alone on this train platform in the middle of nowheresville, Massachusetts, uh, waiting to go cover, a, you know, a Red Sox game, whatever. And, and standing there looking at this dumbfounded and just like crushed that this is it. This is the end my, my favorite band is gone is no more. And like, so that, that moment will, will stay with me, um, forever as well. Uh, not as happy a memory as that night at the Avalon, but, um, but yeah, that was a hell of a way for it to, uh, for me to get that news, man. I, so, so, so bittersweet. We just thank you so much for breaking this all down with us tonight. You gave us a ton of time. We, We went really deep. We went perfect circle, uh, fables of the reconstruction deep, on REM. Uh, so Howard Beck, uh, our nation's best NBA writer. We can't thank you enough for joining us. And, uh, and, uh, what's the first REM song you're going to boot up after this interview? Um, you know, I've actually had it on uh, playing on Spotify in the background while we've been talking and believe it or not, Texarkana by yes. Mike, Mike Mills singing lead is, is, Damn is right. on right now. Like it's just been cycling through. Like it went all the way through automatic for the people and it's just been playing in the background. <laughs> Arcana's on, which actually is great because I feel like the, one of the, the it, like the great things about Out of Time at the end is that this this album feels like it's it's like um, these these songs feel like the end, like they feel like the goodbye of this album. Um, Sex Arcana is like a very much like a that that kind of it's a it's a uh, a parting kind of song. It's just got that uh, that feel about it, and then go you know right into Country Feedback and, and Me and Honey. Anyway, I, I love the, the second half of that album. <laughs> And uh, and that's where we are right now. But but thank you guys for letting me just kind of indulge and, and ramble on. Um, it's it's fun. Like it's a rare that you know I, I get I get you know called a lot to to you know ramble on about basketball. Um, but uh, no one's ever called to ask me to talk about REM. And so like this is this is a actual pleasure. This is phenomenal. So uh, thank you thank you for the time uh, for for you guys bringing me on. It's great. <laughs> 